I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history... We talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Before we kick off the show, if you're a fan of History Hack, please do what you can to support the show. We completely get that not everyone is able or willing to dig into their pockets. Times are hard. But by dropping a like, subscribing on Twitter and YouTube, and importantly, leaving a review wherever you get your podcasts, you can help the programme grow and reach more people. If you're interested in becoming a supporter, go to patreon.com forward slash history hack, where you'll find perks from secret Facebook groups to early release material. If you just want to leave us a one-off tip, go to co-fee.com forward slash history hack. The links are in the description. And whatever form your kind support takes, know that we are massively grateful. Enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to another edition of History Hack. I have Mrs. White with me, no relation, um, not even a kind of, well, I don't know, perhaps we are distant relations, but look, let's be honest, (laughs) we're not here to talk about like our family history. This episode is titled Patron Saint Cromwell. So I'm just hoping there's a tiny bit of Cromwell bashing that you've sourced for us. <laughs> well, you know me, I can't go an entire episode of History Hack without bashing Cromwell at least once, Zach. Um, but today we're joined by Dr. Rebecca Warren. She's an early modern historian and contributor to the recent publication, The Church in Interregnum, England. That's 1649 to 1662. Uh, so we're going into the restoration a little bit there for anyone who's, who's going to call me up on that. Her contribution is an excellent exploration of Oliver Cromwell's role as the head of the Church of England. It's all very, very confusing. and We're going to be discussing it today. Hello, Rebecca. Hello there. (laughs) So what was the national church like in England before the wars under Charles I? Yes, it's helpful to understand what came before in order to understand just how radical the changes were that came afterwards during the Civil War and under Oliver Cromwell. So before 1642, there was essentially a single national church and you had to attend services. You would be fined if you didn't. And um, there were, it was a broadly Calvinist Protestant church. So after the Reformation in the 1530s, Of course, England was Protestant, and there was this single national Protestant church, and it was governed by a complex hierarchical structure with bishops at the top, um, Mm. and then they governed an administration which was organised around dioceses, it had archdeacons, it had deans and deaneries, um, right down to the local level of parishes and parish ministers. 
And people's behavior, very much their personal and of course their religious behavior was kept in check by what were known as the church courts. And the church courts, which no longer exist now, were there to try and maintain, if you like, um, decency and order amongst um, parishioners, amongst the congregation, amongst people on the whole. So that's what's happening before um, 1642. But it is just worth mentioning that even during this period, um, during the late Elizabethan and under James I and Charles I, there are beginning to be moves to try to further the reformation of the 1530s. And we now um, think of these people as Puritans. So Puritanism starts to arrive, starts to appear as early as the 1570s. And the Puritans are hoping for a greater reformation along the lines of what they see on the continent. This is an incredibly complex topic. I remember doing this period for A-level and just thinking, you know, if the religion question comes up in the exam, I'm probably going to have to pick the other one because you just got that fear of getting <laughs> it wrong because it's so complex. So this is a very broad question that I'm about to fire at you. But what happens to the church in the 1640s? And I laugh because I know that we could talk for a whole hour just on that topic. Yes, we could. I mean, you know, we'll start with an hour and we'll go on for two or three weeks, shall we? <laughs> Sounds good. Perfect. Sounds good. No. Um, so under Charles I in the 1630s, the decade preceding the outbreak of war, um, the religious life of the country has become increasingly polarised. So Charles and his archbishop have been trying to make the national church even more ceremonial, moving away from the, if you like, the stark Calvinism um, that had been um, evident under his father and make it more ceremonial and more structural, if you like. Now, this is polarising the nation because a great many people don't want this. They want greater reformation. And what that means is that when war breaks out in the 1640s, um, as soon as Parliament are in a position of power in Westminster and the king has fled, the, one of the very first targets um, within their sights is the what we call the Episcopalian structure of the church. That's the bishops and all of their hierarchy. And that's one of the first things that the parliamentarians are gunning for. And so within, um, well, certainly within 10 years, but within three to four years of the outbreak of war in 1642, the bishops have been abolished, uh, the uh, Book of Common Prayer, the thing around which um, church services have revolved since the Reformation, that's gone. They've replaced it with something called the Directory for Public Worship. And the structure and hierarchy that the bishops oversaw, including the church courts, are gradually being demolished during the 1640s. And all that will be left by 1649 is the unit of the parish, the land that actually made up the parish, and the parish minister um, giving his sermons, giving his services in the church. Gosh. And it's worth saying for folks who perhaps aren't familiar that part of the tension here is that because Charles I, as I think of him, is so is pushing for that greater ceremony that you talk about, everybody goes, well, he's a Catholic, which is a, is a massive grey area. So I'm quite curious about What's the talk like in the royalist camp about religion when Parliament's pushing all of these things through? Yes, so um, you're absolutely right that Charles I is not a Catholic and he is never a Catholic, but he is married to a Catholic wife. 
And the problem, as you rightly say, is that they think that the things that he's trying to do in the 1630s are a prelude to moving the church back to Catholicism. And we have to remember that the 17th century is rabidly anti-papist, almost universally. So even people who are um, on Charles's sides religiously, they do not want to see Catholicism back. So this is a real blue um, touch, pa touch paper, if you like, uh, to, to problems that will um, come about if Charles manages to get his reforms through. Um, the Royalist camp very much associate Episcopalian uh, worship, in other words, what Charles I has been doing, with loyalty to the crown. And it's almost impossible to split those two. So yes, there are royalists, a few of them, who have Presbyterian leanings, but that's very, very few of them. And the combination of Episcopalianism and royalism is so tightly bound in people's minds that you almost by default are assumed to be an Episcopalian if you are a supporter of the king. And you are assumed to be a Presbyterian or a Puritan if you are a supporter of Parliament. Now, as you say, it's complicated, and that is by no means the entire case. But broadly speaking, um, it, it sort of sums up the situation in the 1640s. And it, it seems that uh, yeah, when, when we look at the the sort of slow march towards the civil war, it does seem that that Charles's adherence to Archbishop Lord's reforms and his willingness to to push those through, despite the fact that there is a lot of pushback, and the fact that he's he's got this Catholic wife, it does seem very much that his willingness to stand his ground on this was a real factor towards arms being raised in the end. Yes, I think that's right. I mean, people have argued about the origins of the Civil War since the Civil War, pretty much. <laughs> um, but uh, nobody um, in their right minds doesn't recognise just how critical um, the factor of religious dispute was. And of course, for Charles, he was quite a stubborn man, um, he found it difficult to compromise. But when it comes to his religious beliefs, I think to be fair to him, it wasn't just stubbornness. It was, he was a, a devout Christian, a devout um, Protestant. And for him, he talks a lot uh, about loyalty to his conscience. So for Charles, this, this loyalty to what he believed was the right shape for the church was a matter of fundamental uh, loyalty to his conscience, that he could not do other than continue down the track that he believed was right. Because if he did, it would uh, betray, if you like, his, his relationship with his God. It's so hard for a, a modern listener to, to comprehend. Yes, that's right. We, we Few of us now have that understanding of how deeply um, conscience-bound and uh, spiritual people were in the 17th century. Many people were. No, this isn't isn't the um, the area that you've written about because you've written specifically about England. I think it is also worth perhaps just throwing in at this point a reminder that we had the English had been at war in Scotland over the bishops over the issue of putting bishops in Scotland. They did not like this. 
that's absolutely right. So the Scots became Presbyterian back in the 1560s. So they'd already pushed their reformation further forwards. And Charles, again, he and Lord, Archbishop Lord, they are trying to bring the whole of uh, their, the country, which includes Scotland, of course, back towards this more ceremonial form of uh, what's called Lordianism, this more ceremonial form of Protestantism. And the first thing they do, um, like subsequent people um, in more recent years, is try it out in Scotland. I know. We'll see, we'll see how it goes down in Scotland. Well, it goes down like a lead balloon in Scotland. And so the, the beginning of Charles's problems, really, is trying to impose the, the prayer book, um, the Book of Common Prayer um, and bishops, um, trying to reinforce the role of bishops um, in Scotland, which brings the Scots out in force um, as, as um, in military conflict. And the whole thing... Uh, sort of escalates from there. Um, so yes, poor Charles, he, he I'm sure meant it, it with the best of intentions, but it was a politically terrible decision on his part. So let's zero in on Cromwell then. Um, he says, desperately hoping that we get to bash him a little <laughs> bit over the course of the next few minutes. Um, what were Cromwell's personal views, I guess, is the starting point when it came to religion. So what did what did he think, first of all, and then we can kind of discuss protectorate and so on. Yeah, so the first thing to say is um, that very frustratingly, we actually don't know very much about Cromwell's personal beliefs. He didn't leave any nice letters. Um, he didn't leave any nice diary entries. He didn't leave nice um, autobiographies saying, this is what I believe. And so uh, historians have had to piece together from the letters and speeches and um, things that he did say, what his overall understanding of his relationship with God was. Um, and, you know, people have been arguing about it for the last 400 years. So it's not surprising if, if everybody's a little bit hazy on this. Um, but some things we do know. So we do know that he undergoes a Puritan conversion, um, probably in the early 1630s. Uh, this is actually quite typical for people in this period. He was by no means the only person. There is an increasing number, there are an increasing number of people who become converted to Puritanism. This seems to be what happened to Cromwell. And through this, he joins, if you like, a, a, a sort of semi-separate group within the wider society of, of the godly, what we call the Puritans we call the godly. And they see themselves as a quite a separate group trying to push for further reformation, to do God's work on this earth, and to find out particularly whether they are in fact saved, because nobody really knows if they're saved. You just have to hope. So we know that he's converted um, in the early 1630s. He, he becomes part of the, the Puritan group, if you like. But beyond that, he leaves us very little idea as to what he actually believed in terms of dogma or doctrine. But we do know some things. So we do know that, and this will surprise you all, he was actually a far more tolerant Puritan than many. He did not believe that forms, what he called forms in religion, were really critical. In other words, doing something this way or doing it that way. Did that really matter to Cromwell? Well, no, not terribly. So long as you were within what he believed to be the godly um, the godly group, if you like, his overriding aim was the unity of the godly. He wanted unity, he wanted union of believers. And so long as you were within his grasp of what, what it meant to be godly, and so long as you were 
working towards this union of believers, then he was quite prepared to be tolerant on whether you believed in this form of baptism or not, whether you believed in doing things this way or doing things not. Now, that was not the case with all the godly by any means. He was unusual in that sense. But what it meant was that he was able to comprehend a whole range of Calvinist practices within his concept of what the godly church should look like. So he's, he's tolerant, we're, we're, we're led to understand. But are we, are we talking about within the confines of the Church of England? Because I, I'd suggest that he perhaps wasn't so tolerant towards Catholics because the estates were sequestered and you know there was a lot of persecution of Catholic families. So when we say he's tolerant, are we, are we extending that beyond the Church of England or just within those sects? Yes, no, that, you're absolutely right, that Cromwell's tolerance has very set boundaries. Within this, the godly, within the, the, the Puritan world, then small, small varieties of practice and belief, he's, he's happy with that. He doesn't see those as, as mattering. He doesn't see that they interfere with your relationship with God. But there are, of course, people who are outside what he understands as um, acceptable and godly. So Episcopalians, uh, you don't even have to be a Catholic. So certainly if you're a Catholic, you're outside. Mm-hmm. Um, but Episcopalians are too. And the reason they are is because of this idea that the uh, the bishops are, are a critical part of the Episcopalian church. Well, what do the bishops do and all these other offices? They get in between the believer and his God. So this is a problem. Um, and there are Sects are on, if you like, so the Catholics and the Episcopalians, one might say, are at one end of the spectrum, um, but right at the other end of the spectrum, on the far side of the the godly, uh, one can also highlight uh, the sects such as the Quakers, who arrive in 1652, or some of the earlier um, peculiar sects, such as the Ranters, uh, who are taking the idea of godliness a little bit too far. They are becoming too extreme um, and they are moving for Cromwell and his colleagues into the realms of heresy and blasphemy. So his tolerance is, is very much within parameters and I think it's, it's critical to say that. But it is also worth saying that rather like Elizabeth I, Cromwell, even for those who are outside his um, understanding of the godly, so the papists, for example, he is more concerned with the link between those religious beliefs and their political problem, the political problems that come with them, than whether they hold those beliefs or not. He is not rabidly anti-Catholic because of Catholicism, so much as during his period in power, rabidly anti-Catholic because the Catholics are a problem and they are a political threat. So I think it's very difficult to disassociate religion and politics in this period. They are too bound up with each other um, to be treated entirely separately. And it's worth sort of bearing that in mind when one thinks of Cromwell's religious um, tolerance and (laughs) (laughs) anti-tolerance. Is that part of the reason that kind of inclination towards tolerance, part of the reason why he's willing to let the Jews return to the country after they'd been banished in the 1290s, I think it was. Yes. So, I mean, are there pragmatic concerns behind that? Or is this just a case of, you know what, it's it's fine, you can come in. I, I haven't got an issue with, you know, you practicing a different type of religion, so long as it's not going to impinge on my kind of views on 
um, what's the, the right word for it? Um, I don't want to call it Christian worship because that is has the wrong connotations. You, you know what I'm trying to say, though? I know exactly, yes, I know exactly what you mean. And I think the answer to that is we're not entirely sure. But I think, yes, had he been, uh, had he been um, anti any kind of religion that wasn't his kind of religion, for its own sake, then he would have struggled much more to allow the Jews back in. Of course he would. Um, as it is, I think that's part of his, I mean, you're absolutely right, that part of his thinking is um, that being Jewish in its own right is not actually a crime. He would much rather the Jews were Protestant, don't get me wrong. I mean, he would, and one of the reasons we think that he was, um, uh, he supported the, the, the return of the Jews is because there was an understanding that it was necessary for the Jews to be converted to Christianity in order for um, uh, the new millennium, the, the, godly, the new godly Jerusalem to be created on earth. So actually allowing the Jews back in where once they were faced with a godly republic, they would instantly convert because why mm. wouldn't you? <laughs> was sort of perhaps part of the thinking that was going on there. But it's also worth saying that your other point is right, too, that this is also pragmatic, that the Jews are useful. You know, the Jews are useful people. You know, they are businessmen. They have a lot of money. Um, and so on a number of fronts, accepting the Jews uh, return to England is something that Cromwell is fully prepared to do. It must be said that that is in contrast with virtually every other person in the country. Now, very few other people are like, like Cromwell um, prepared to have the Jews back in. But he manages to kind of swing it by sort of allowing it through the back door. I guess that's one of the, um, the benefits of being head of state, really, isn't it? <laughs> that's, it's so interesting because when you are, like myself, not a fan of Oliver Cromwell, it's often the thing that people use to say, ah, yes, but he did good things. He, he allowed the Jews to come back to the country. And again, like you say, there's always a part of you that thinks, yes, that's that's really good and wonderful. But there must have been, he must have had an angle. There must have been some reason for this sort of wonderful welcoming that, uh, that well, he was. I think it's worth bearing in mind was a pragmatist. He really was an absolute pragmatist. Now, he was absolutely devout in his godly beliefs. And it, I think, it affected his life so fundamentally that you cannot... Um, understand anything of Cromwell's actions without understanding uh, his relationship with God. But he was also within that a pragmatic man. You know, he'd been around for 40 years before the Civil War kicks off. Mm. You know, he's not a wet behind the ears 18 year old full of, full of um, you know, idealism. He really understands something of real politique. And I think that it does not negate his religious views to recognize that part of his actions are are pragmatic as well these two things are perfectly consistent with each other although sometimes they led him into all sorts of trouble <laughs> <laughs> because of course some suddenly he finds post civil war post regicide he is head of state he is the guy in charge and with that comes the being the head of the church in England. So what was Cromwell's vision for religious practice in the protectorate? Did he have one? 
Um, yes and no is the answer to that. Um, no, because, I mean, yes, he did. Of course he did. <laughs> but the, 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 the answer, and it's a really interesting question, the one that you pose, because the answer to that is that during the um, years of the Commonwealth, the Republic, between 1649 and 16, very end of 1653, Cromwell becomes protector, the very end of 1653, Charles I had his head cut off, 1649. And in between those two dates, um, there is a five-year period of Commonwealth government by Parliament. Um, and he ha it has become um, clear during this period that the church is struggling to maintain itself. The, the, the Episcopalian church has gone. The Presbyterian church which Parliament were putting into place um, during the 1640s collapses just before uh, the king is executed. So there's now not a functioning Presbyterian church um, uh, across the whole country. And so sort of ministers carry on preaching, people carry on going to church, but nobody's really quite sure what you can and can't do. <laughs> and the problems that have been, that Parliament in this period could not solve during this period, of trying to get a form of church that everybody would agree to are still there when Cromwell becomes protector. And if you like, they do a rather <laughs> a canny job, which is they simply sidestep the idea of this is what our church will look like. And they say, OK. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. The, the kind of the undercurrent is we don't know what our church can look like because nobody will agree on it. So we'll just park that to one side. But what we're going to do is make a godly church by putting in a lot of godly parish ministers. So the thing that has remained from all the changes during the 1640s is, as I said earlier, uh, the structure of parishes and ministers in their pulpits preaching to people. And so what the Cromwellians decide is that they will, if you like, create a godly church in New Jerusalem in England by putting godly ministers into parishes. And by doing that, godly ministers will magically create a godly church, won't they? I mean, of course they will. <laughs> it, it, it sidesteps the problem of trying to get everybody in power to agree to what form of church there should be. Um, it doesn't necessarily get over the problems of creating a godly church there. What kind of impact does that have as a, at a grassroots level, though? Because you've got different people who, yes, they may be godly, I'm sure, but they'll have different ideas and they'll emphasise different points without that kind of centralised direction. So do you see kind of different almost factions and pockets breaking out in different regions? Yes, you absolutely do. And this is one of the reasons why it's such a complex period um, to understand, because actually there's a whole series of things going on in the parishes and we don't actually know what a lot of parish ministers are doing. I mean, bizarrely enough, we probably know much more about what parish ministers are doing in the previous two centuries, uh, pre and post-Reformation, than we do in the 1640s and 50s, because there's so little um, both guidance, but also so little vetting of what's going on. 
We have to remember that whilst the Cromwellians, and we'll come on to this in a moment, are busy putting uh, godly ministers into parishes, most of the parishes in England, uh, or quite a lot of the parishes in England, still have their old Episcopalian ministers. Now, some of these have just kind of keeping their heads down. They're going along with what they're told to do now. But what are they actually doing in a, in a service? Well, some of them are kind of using the prayer book covertly by remembering what it said, even if they can't actually use it. Some of them are signed up to a new Presbyterian form of worship. Some of them are independents. In other words, they don't even like the Presbyterian structure, but they're, they're still you know, godly Puritans. Um, so a whole raft of different things is going on. And in terms of how people on the ground, how your average congregation uh, takes it, well, that is entirely down to the individuals and the ministers that they um, are going to listen to. Some people are very happy to have um, a, godly, a godly church. Other people are distraught, angry, um, don't care. Don't forget, quite a lot of people out there honestly don't care. They just turn up, they listen, and they go away again. And if they don't have to turn up, even better. We must remember that not everybody cares quite as much as we sometimes think. <laughs> but for most people, going to church, you know, is a fundamental part of their of their daily or certainly weekly life. And some of them will find the changes that take place um, perfectly acceptable. The reformation of manners, you know, is a good thing. The improvement in society's standards is a good thing. Getting rid of these hated bishops is a good thing. We must remember a lot of people out there think that way. But equally, there are a lot of people out there who mourn for the loss of their Book of Common Prayer. This was how they understood their days and their weeks to go by using this liturgy. So it's very difficult to um, generalize about how people felt. Uh, but certainly, there's a spectrum of response, I think, would be a fair way of putting it. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Gosh. So once he's, once he's protector and he's got this, this level of, of control over the structure, what did he do to actually achieve the vision that he had? And how on earth was this policed? This is what I can't understand in a, in a world before, in a world before, Twitter, an email, an instant communication. How can you place this? Yes, I mean, that is a really interesting question and it's a really difficult problem. Um, but let's start off with the first thing. So, so they decide that they will have this policy of putting godly ministers in. And how do you do that? How do you make this um, church, this new godly church that they're trying to establish work? Well, what the Cromwellian um, 
regime does is to set up, if you like, they have three arms of a, of a program, um, a religious program that they put in place. Now, the first is that they have a commission of what are called triers in London. And every minister who wants to take up um, a parish or indeed wants to change from one parish to another has to go in front of the triers and they will ask him all sorts of searching questions to make sure that he is acceptably godly. They will also be making sure that he is competent, that he actually knows the Bible, that he is a good preacher. So we have to remember that, that, that the Protestant church and particularly the godly Protestant church is the church of the word. It is all about preaching. Um, and so they are vetting new ministers to make sure that they're competent. The second arm is that they put county um, commissions in place that will eject incompetent or unacceptable ministers. So those ministers who are still using the prayer book, for example, or who turn up drunk every Sunday, or who don't turn up at all every Sunday. Um, and there are a reasonable number of those. The ejection commissions um, around the counties will be throwing them out and hoping that uh, the trials will replace them with godly ministers. The third arm, and the one that is very rarely talked about, but is crucially important, is that they try to improve the funding of the church. So they're really keen to improve the finances to make sure, again, that you can put a godly minister in a parish. He can stay there because he can support his family and therefore he can preach the gospel to his parishioners. So that's how they, if you like, establish their, their godly church. It's all about the ministers, the quality of the ministry. But how do they police it? Well, that's a lot, lot harder. Partly they leave it to the godly ministers. Now, there's a whole raft of problems for godly ministers there, which are too complicated really for us to go into here. Um, but if your parishioners are on side with your minister, then they're probably up for obeying the kind of uh, strictures that he preaches to you. If they're not, if, the, if there's a, a dispute between minister and congregation, then you're absolutely right. How do you police it? Well, actually, you can't. People are reported to the JPs. They may go to court. Um, but those are mainly for behavioural um, delinquency, but it's very difficult to actually really force people to go to church um, and to behave in the way the godly would like you to behave. The legislation forcing you to go to church, to attend your parish church, has been lifted in the early 1650s, but you must go to some form of religious worship. But how do you police that? Mm. Very difficult. So, yes, I mean, your point is a really good one. And it goes not just for religious behavior, but for actually all behavior is how do early modern regimes police themselves? Well, there are a number of agencies out there, but it's a very difficult thing to really um, hammer home and to make work. Yeah. And you were talking about funding just now. Where does that funding come from? Is that stuff that's going to come from Parliament? Is it kind of state supported religion? So what they're trying to do is they're trying to re-align um, funding that is, that is currently coming in. So uh, there are a number of different sources. Um, there are fines and composition fines coming in from people who won't toe the line and are therefore being fined. But in particular, there's a lot of income to the church, which would have gone to the church structure, the Episcopalian structure itself, leases and rents, um, tithe income, of course, is fundamental to how a parish priest is maintained, a parish minister is maintained. Um, and tithes remain throughout this period. But 
um, at the dissolution of the monasteries and at the Reformation, a lot of tithes, um, instead of uh, staying within the control of the church, they went to uh, private individuals. And private individuals, in other words, if you had a parish and the parishioners were supposed to be paying tithes to the parish minister to support him, after the Reformation, a lot of these tithes were then paid to a local aristocrat, and from his income, he was supposed to pay a wage, effectively, to the parish minister. Now, often these were not paid or were badly paid. And so one of the things that the uh, godly regimes, Cromwell in particular, does is to reallot uh, re this income and say, no, this income actually needs to come back to us, and we are going to use this income to fund parish ministers as it should have been. So the funding is coming from a whole different range of um, uh, uh, sources, um, but they do make a really comprehensive but not always successful attempt to reallocate money to the parish minister to maintain the godly ministry. It's incredible because sometimes when you when you start looking into the money and the tithes, you could look at the Reformation as one massive con. Um, you know, Henry VIII handing money that was going to monasteries to his favourite people. Do you think Cromwell looked at this and, and thought we could we can do better then? Was he trying to do a little bit better and push the Reformation that bit further then with, from a financial perspective? Yes, he absolutely was, because at the forefront of his mind is always the need to spread the gospel and to particularly to spread the gospel to what was known then as the dark corners of the land. In other words, those places <laughs> not round about London, but, you know, in Wales, sorry, Wales, um, in the <laughs> north of England, sorry, north of England. But those places which were known as the dark corners of the land. But, you know, everywhere was a long way from London in the early modern period. And, you know, parishes could be very, very remote, just depending on you know topography and so on. For the, for the godly, for Cromwell in particular, the overriding overriding aim of his regime is to create a godly commonwealth to spread the gospel to everybody to make sure that everybody had access to what he believed was you know the most important thing that could ever happen to them this is this is you know very genuine in his mind um, and so he recognizes that if the main way you're going to do that is through the parish ministry, you must fund the parish ministry. So it's no good the triers in London approving a man to go as, 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 as very godly and a great preacher and a wonderful teacher to go and work in some godforsaken parish in, I don't know, Lancashire or Sussex or somewhere, if actually the parish can't support him and he can't stay. So the funding of the, of the um, parishes was a critical and generally overlooked part of the Cromwellian um, religious programme. And how hands-on is Cromwell as a kind of, what I think you term an ecclesiastical patron? Yes, so this is another way in which Cromwell um, uh, is responsible for creating or trying to create the godly church. So... In order to become a parish minister, I just have to digress into a little bit of understanding here. In order to become a parish minister, you have to be presented by um, somebody to that parish. In other words, um, you get a piece of paper which says it's effectively a job offer. You have to have a job offer. And then you go to the bishop who's, who looks at you and talks to you, looks at your job offer and says, yep, that law looks fine. Off you go and be this parish minister. I mean, I'm 
obviously gloss it a little <laughs> bit, but that has to, that is the way it happens. So you must be presented. And when Cromwell becomes protector, he acquires the most enormous amount of patronage and patronage is what enables you to present a minister. And he acquires this patronage, all these presentations, because the crown has gone with the execution of Charles I in 1649, the bishops and all of the other church officers, the archdeacons and so on, they've all gone. Both of those two groups held an enormous amount of ecclesiastical patronage. In other words, the power to hand out a parish to one man or another. Because those have all gone, this has all devolved onto Cromwell himself. And alongside that, he also tends to, it's not a, a, a black and white issue, but he tends to acquire the patronage for all of those uh, parishes where the minister has been thrown out by the ejectors. In other words, maybe he was an Episcopalian, maybe he was drunk, maybe he was a fornicator, he swore, whatever, he was a gambler. He's thrown out. And very often um, the patronage as to who will go into that parish uh, comes to Cromwell. Now that's not always the case by any means, but he picks up an enormous amount of patronage, far bigger than anybody has ever had in the past up until this point. And so he is able effectively to choose who the parish ministers will be. If we think statistically for a moment, the Cromwellian regime, the triers, approve about three and a half thousand new ministers for parishes, of which about 1,200 of those are chosen by Cromwell. So that is a huge amount of choice that he can exercise over who can be put into the church. Now, just as a kind of a way of understanding what that means, there are probably um, between nine and 10,000 parishes in the country. So it's about a third of them will get new ministers during the protectorate. And of those, a third of those will be chosen by Cromwell. So he's a very, very significant ecclesiastical patron. Gosh. And when you think about, you know, we've sort of touched on very jokingly that people don't have social media, they don't have access to fast <laughs> news like we've got now that we're so used to. So much news and information is spread through preaching. If you know that you have put people in those positions where they're going to be talking to the people in the dark corners, you know, I'm, I'm from the Fens and, you know, we're you know, nice and dark over there. If you know that these people are your guys, then you can almost control the flow of news and information from that perspective. Yeah, that's absolutely spot on. I mean, you've absolutely pinpointed what is critical here, that the parish minister was very often a real point of contact between, if you like, the authorities um, and the individuals, how individuals behaved. And so, again, this idea that if we put godly men into the parishes, we will get a godly world is, is very much how the Cromwellians think in terms of spreading the word of the gospel. So, yes, I mean, a parish minister now is somebody that many people living in um, probably don't know what parish they're in, certainly won't have ever met their minister and probably never been into their church. This was so, so not the case in the 1640s and 50s and the entire 17th century. You knew who your minister was. He knew you. He probably, he certainly should have been 
Um, and he probably came round and catechized your family on a Sunday. Catechizing is coming round and teaching the basics of Christianity to you so that when you turned up, you understood what was going on. So you had a real one-to-one -one relationship with this person, unless you were one of those who loathed the sight of the man and never turned up, in which case you, you, know, you had to go somewhere else and do something else. But on the whole, generally speaking, all people in their parish, in the parish, knew who the minister was. And he would be a person who also would have made, of, made civil announcements as well. So it's not just about religion. He would also have stood up. You know, you can imagine at the end of a service, and I've got some notices now, you know, the government says. Yes. <laughs> so one has to remember that this is, they're not government mouthpieces, but they are a vehicle through which government information can flow. So when Cromwell becomes protector, he's effectively head of state. Does that therefore mean that he's, I don't know, a bit like a, an Archbishop of Canterbury type figure, head of the church in, in England and Wales? Is he a sort of defender of the faith? What's his role? How does it all work? Yes, that's really interesting, isn't it? Is he an Archbishop of Canterbury? Well, he's not. I mean, he's not like the Archbishop of Canterbury um, for the, well, for many, many obvious reasons, um, but particularly for the reason in principle that the Archbishop of Canterbury had spiritual authority over the church. Cromwell never, and his colleagues, they never claimed to have a spiritual authority. That is not how they see their role. And indeed, one of the complaints that a lot of people have who are not supporters of um, the, godly, the godly regime, the godly um, drive, if you like, is that these regimes, the Commonwealth and the Protectorate, are putting laymen in a power of a position of power over the spiritual, over ministers, and they really object to that. So in that sense, no, nothing could be further than the truth. Cromwell is definitely not an archbishop figure. But in the sense that he has enormous control over the structure of um, the church, what we think of as the church, it's debatable whether there actually is a national church in the 1650s, but he has control over the structure of normal, if you like, everyday parish worship, then yes, he has powers very much akin to the Archbishop of Canterbury. His, the way that his administration works is different. Um, the way that he works is different. He doesn't try to interfere with what is going on on the whole. He does have his patronage, but even those, those ministers whom he presents still have to go past the triers for their approval as well, even though the triers are a body that he has put in place. But he doesn't try to subvert the structures that he and his regime have created. Um, but in the sense that the Archbishop of Canterbury has you know, a hierarchical structure to govern the church, the Cromwellians do too. And in the sense that Cromwell is the most powerful of the Cromwellians, then yes, he does too. So, so similar and not similar, I think, would be the answer to that question. <laughs> so I think I've got a little bit of a clue to my next question in the, the topic of your essay, which runs dates from 1649 to 1662. But after the Protectorate collapses, is there a lasting legacy from Cromwell's godly nation that affects the Church of England into the Restoration years? Ah, oh, yes. What a lovely topic that is. Um, but briefly, <laughs> um, what happens after the end of the protectorate 
is that uh, there's, a, there's a short period of, of sort of military chaos. And then, as everybody knows, Charles II is restored to the throne in 1660. And in 1660, when Charles comes back, when the monarchy comes back, sorry, um, the idea is that everything that's happened in the last 20 years is, is, is null and void, and we're going to go back to how things were in 1640. Okay, fine. But of course, you can't turn the clock back. So whilst the legislation may go, people have been changed by 20 years of a completely different series of regimes. And one of the things, one of the most fundamental things that they have been changed by is the idea that you can worship in different ways legitimately. So before 1640, you couldn't. You had to be a member of the Church of England. After 1660, and certainly after 1662, there are a very significant proportion of the population who have, if you like, tasted freedom of worship, mm -hmm. tasted the opportunity to worship differently to the Episcopalian church that is now restored again in England. And they're not going to give that up. They are persecuted throughout the 1660s and the 1670s and into even the 1680s, but they are not going to give it up. They continue to worship in their separated congregations. And when um, William and Mary, um, William of Orange, comes over in 1688 in the Glorious Revolution, one of the principles on which he is accepted back into, or accepted into England, is the idea that he will not clamp down on um, diversity of religious uh, practice. Mm -hmm. And of course, he brings in the Act of Toleration in 1668 um, when, he, when he takes the throne. In that sense, Restoration England is fundamentally changed by what has happened in the Cromwellian period. Mm -hmm. There's another little point as well that's, that's worth saying, uh, which has come out very much out of my research um, uh, into what happens under Cromwell in the 1650s, which is that not all, by no means, all of those ministers who were put in by Cromwell and the Cromwellians, not just by him personally, leave the church in 1662. So in 1662, you have to take the um, Act of Uniformity. In other words, you have to agree that you're going to sign up to the idea of bishops, you're going to preach with the Book of Common Prayer, and you're going to go back to how things were. A lot of ministers won't do that. They've been godly ministers for the last 10 or 15 years. They can't accept that, and so they have to leave the church. But actually, 700 of them who were put in by the Cromwellians say, yeah, I can do that. That's all right, I'll do that. And they stay in the church. Now, one may wonder quite how they manage this sort of sleight of hand, you know, what exactly are their beliefs? But what this means is that a number, a good number of ministers who are acting as parish ministers in the 1660s within the Episcopalian church were put in by the godly regime. And it's, I think, a, a moot point at the moment as to what influence that may or may not have had in parishes throughout the 1660s. Gosh, it's it's such an such an interesting time and what happens at this point. Thank you so much for giving me the background to all of this, because my my own research comes post-1660. And I've always really felt for Charles II, because despite the fact that he tried to push through the Declaration of Indulgence, which would permit tolerance and freedom of worship, not only for, for dissenters, 
of you know of various Church of England denominations, but also for Catholics who had been loyal to the Royalists. He was repeatedly voted down because of the same problems that Cromwell had with the Catholics, which was that dissent in religion equals potential dissent against the state. And it's yeah. the fear of rebellion and the fear yeah. of that that means you have to clamp down on the religious side of things. Yes, and that's absolutely absolutely the case. And in, in a funny way, there are very strong similarities for these two men at, di- at you know either end of this spectrum. So both Cromwell and Charles II, if you like, we go back to our point about are actually quite tolerant. Charles II would accept um, you know dissenters. He would accept room for people who wanted to carry on as Presbyterians. But it's the people around him who won't. It's the people around him in government who absolutely can't can't even tolerate the idea of it. Just as Cromwell would have accepted a range of of different um, beliefs, but found himself constantly battling with Parliament during his protectorate. And of course, there are three parliaments during the protectorate, constantly battling with them to stop them persecuting people who don't look exactly like them. There are similarities there, which um, I think are rarely picked up on, but are are strong and interesting um, uh, comparisons. And uh, yeah, I agree. I think one has to feel for both men that they found themselves in positions where they were surrounded by people who were more bigoted and less willing to think outside the box than in religious terms than they themselves were. And ultimately, as you say, because religion and political quiescence, political um, difficulties, political uh, problems are so closely linked, it was impossible for them to to expect people to to separate the two and to accept that you could be religiously, um, you could have dissent within religion, but you could still have loyal political subjects. And this is one of the things that everybody in this period struggled with and continued to struggle with throughout the Restoration. Rebecca, this has been just a, a masterclass. I've genuinely, I've been listening to this, wishing that I'd been able to talk to you as a, a spotty 17-year-old trying to get their head around this <laughs> for their A-levels, because had I listened to this, I might have actually attempted that religion question when it came up in the email. Um, thank you ever so much. If folks want to hear a little bit more about your research, you've contributed to the church in Interregnum England, 1649 to 62, which we'll make sure is in the history hack bookstore for folks who want to follow it up but you're also on twitter aren't you i am on twitter yes i'm at dr rj warren and um yes you'll find uh, a reasonable amount of history and i'm afraid an embarrassing amount of environmentalism as well there so you're fully warned um but there are a lot of very interesting um early modern accounts on twitter and uh, I recommend in particular um, the Cromwell Museum run a very interesting account full of fascinating bits of information about this whole period, not in favour of Cromwell, not against Cromwell, just trying to explain and explore the whole period. So, yes, um, you're very welcome to follow me um, and, and look around at the other forms of accounts in, who discuss this area of history, because it's a rich and rewarding topic. And I would strongly support anybody else to do that, too. <laughs> Brilliant. Well, there you are, folks. Get on Twitter, have a little search around. And Rebecca, thank you ever so much for this. This has been an absolute joy. Thank you. It's been a real pleasure and um, not too technical, I hope. (laughs) Hello, folks. Zach again here. As you know, we love bringing you these podcasts. 
but each episode has a huge investment of time behind it. For every hour of showtime, there's often a good four, five or six hours of work that's going in behind the scenes. We want to bring you more content, video content even, but as reality has hit and the need to earn a living has returned, we just haven't been able to do that. That's where you come in. Your support doesn't need to be financial. You can follow us on Twitter at hack underscore history. Find us on Facebook and Instagram. Subscribe on YouTube. Even simple likes, shares and retweets make a huge difference in widening our reach beyond the small army of you who tune in. And if you love the show, leave a review. If all our listeners were able to find the two minutes to do that, it would massively increase our reach. Of course, we totally get that times are hard and money is tight. If you can spare something and want to, there are different ways that you can help. If you want to become a regular supporter, check out patreon.com forward slash history hack. There are all kinds of perks across different levels of support, with prices starting at £3 a month. If you just want to send us a one-off tip, then visit co-fee.com forward slash history hack. The links are in the description to this episode. But importantly, also have a think about supporting our listeners. The hour they spend with us is a minuscule fraction of the time that they spend researching and writing their books. With that in mind, we set up the History Hack bookstore, where you can support both them and us, instead of funding Jeff Bezos' next trip into space, which is what pretty much happens when you buy via Amazon. Again, the link is in the description, and we have a huge back catalogue of titles written by our guests. When you buy via uk.bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash history hack, we get a percentage, and so do independent booksellers. Whatever form your support takes, we massively appreciate it. So from Alex, Boney and me, and the rest of your down-the-pub regulars, thank you, and have a great day. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.